Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. This is Seth Greenland, and you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Today, we're going to talk about a new literary web aggregator called LitHub, two disparate but wildly successful books, if you're keeping score at home, they're To Kill a Mockingbird and, believe it or not, Fifty Shades of Grey. We'll talk to Adrian Todd Zuniga, who I think has a story about throwing cupcakes at Brett Easton Ellis. Joining me are the editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books, Tom Lutz. Hello, Seth. Hello, Tom. And critic and gal about town, Lori Weiner. Namaste. You would think if you were an 88-year-old woman in a nursing home in a tiny town in Alabama, it would be very difficult to make international literary news. But if your name is Harper Lee, that's not really the case. Because a few weeks ago, when it was announced that her book, Go Set a Watchman, was going to be published, it landed on the front page of the New York Times somewhere between uh, an article on ISIS and one on the situation in the Ukraine. It was a a massive, massive uh, international literary story because of the uh, the success, the international success of her one novel up until now, her only novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Laurie, do you want to give us some background on the situation? The story is that Tanya Carter, I think it's pronounced Tanya, it's spelled T-O-N-J-A, who is the lawyer for Harper Lee and has been connected with her family forever. Uh, she began as an assistant at the law firm that Harper Lee's father and sister worked at. Now she is a lawyer there, and she's Harper Lee's lawyer. She found the manuscript while doing some routine work and uh, thought that it was an early draft of To Kill a Mockingbird and was very excited to find that it was this other novel that people have known existed, but nobody really knew what happened to it because originally her publisher declined to publish this novel called Go Set a Watchman, which is really a terrible title, isn't it? I mean, what does that, it does rhythmically off and- It's it's terrible. Terrible title. Anyway, according to the story in the New York Times, she finds the manuscript, she takes it to her client, Harper Lee, who is in a nursing home, and there is some debate as to whether she is compus mentis, but her lawyer says she absolutely is. And Harper Lee was actually kind of pleased that she had found it after all these years, and- according to the lawyer, agreed to have it published. And there's a further backstory as well, because in 2007, it's eight years ago, or she was already perhaps non-compus mentis. Uh, she somehow signed over the copyright to her then attorney, or her then agent, sorry, uh, Sam Pincus, who um, apparently was just robbing her blind, and he would send her once in a while a check with no accounting uh, and this went on for several years. He had a bunch of dummy corporations set up. It looks incredibly crooked, and uh, they finally wrested the copyright back from him. The reason, Tom, I think the backstory is germane is that what it does is set up a pattern of uh, exploitation, not to put exactly. too fine a point on it, yeah. actually. And which, which brings me to, the I think, the really salient question here. Should Go Set a Watchman be published? Well, the fact that Nell as she's known, sees very few people. You know, There's conflicting reports about her state of mind, but the thing that convinced me that she probably was compus mentis is that she's very close friends with Diane McWhorter, another Pulitzer Prize winner who won for her book about Birmingham. And 
McWhorter visited her two times this past summer and is in, you know, constant touch with her. And she says that she's fine. Oh, interesting. To me, that is very convincing. She may be fine, but it's very curious to me that this novel has been sitting in a drawer for 50 years. She has not wanted it published. Now that she's close to 90 years old, all of a sudden she's very happy with the book coming out. A statement was released by uh, Tanya Carter. I think Harper Lee said something, I'm happy as hell. Yeah. Uh, Harper Collins, the publisher, not to be confused with Harper Lee, her publisher is Harper Collins, is planning a print run of two million copies Right. It was an unbelievable print run for a, a, a novel. and But why does this incense you that someone might stand to make a lot of money off of this? Well, let me push back a little bit. I would not describe myself as incensed. I would describe myself as bemused by the meretriciousness of the publishing business, where their model dictates that one massive success will pay for a million other writers to experiment and hope they're work somehow finds a public. And I guess on, on one level, I can't fault them. On another level, I really question, despite what people are saying, Harper Lee's agency in all this. It's, it's a terrific imaginative leap for me to think of a novelist who's written a book, determined that it is not worthy of being published, and 50 years later, suddenly decides that it is. That, to me, is a fantasy. I, I But can might there be me. some value, even if the book is not of great quality in having access to it. My feeling with that is, yes, there is value in it once Harper Lee is gone. I feel that it's, to me, it's exploitive to take a living author, a book that she has spent her entire life not publishing, and deciding now at the end of her life to publish this book while she's still living. To me, that's there's something unsavory about that. Well, and Lee Siegel, writing in The New Yorker last week, said that you know one of the reasons this story is so resonant for people is because uh, we're all a little bit afraid of elder abuse. We're all a little afraid of what happens when we're not completely on top of things and whether or not people are going to take advantage of us. And it's got it's that story of that maybe she's being railroaded once again that has people upset. And I feel that in once an author has died, then if she is worthy of scholarly attention, then sure, read her shopping lists if that's of interest. So but if she was dead, it would be okay? I, I feel somehow, yes. You want Harper Lee dead. <laughs> That's not right. You've you just, you just backed me in one corner. I, f- I feel that if, if her career merits scholarly interest, then all of her papers are somehow germane to the study of that career. Of course her career merits scholarly interest, right? I mean, this is, a, this is one of the big, this is the Uncle Tom's cabin of the 20th century. That's a really interesting backhanded compliment you just slung at Harper Lee. Absolutely. Because no one will make the argument that Uncle Tom's Cabin is a great novel. I think, and that, I think, uh, it, is, I think it is a pretty good novel. I think it's really interesting. Well, was Tom right in assuming that you have ambivalent feelings about the original novel, oh. To Kill a Mockingbird? Yes, all I can say about To Kill a Mockingbird, having read it once when I was much younger, is that it really did not stay with me. It, it read as a well-made book that I enjoyed when I read it, and didn't resonate beyond that. I read it around the same time that I was first introduced to uh, Charles Dickens and J.D. Salinger. And both Dickens and Salinger stayed with me. The books that I read at that age stayed with me 
to a far greater degree than, than To Kill a Mockingbird did. Now, maybe, maybe I had a gendered reaction, and if I were female, that Scout Finch would have been a much more important literary character for me. But my feeling about To Kill a Mockingbird was that it was very much of its time. I feel one of the reasons it has stayed with people so long has as much to do with Gregory Peck as it does with Harper Lee, and its continued valence in American culture I find slightly amazing, actually. And, and I would have, if, if I were to predict, I would have said it would have gone the route of something like Marjorie Morningstar, Herman Wouk's novel of 1955 that I think sold more copies than any book in that year, was remarkably popular. People read it for several years after that and then stopped reading it. But I, I just reread the opening of it um, over the last few days, and I, I think it's actually kind of good. It, you know, it starts, when he was nearly 13, my brother Jem got his arm badly broken at the elbow. And then the rest of that paragraph's about him. He wants to play bat- football. He's worried about his arm. Then the, skip ahead to the, just the second paragraph. When enough years had gone by to enable us to look back on them, we sometimes discussed the events leading to his accident. I maintain that the Ewells started it all, but Jem, who was four years my senior, said it started long before that. He said it began the summer Dill came to us when Dill first gave us the idea of making Boo Radley come out. That's full of interest and mystery, and inter- it's interesting. Anyway... The first lesson that we hear Atticus give to Scout, his daughter, is she's just come home from her first day at school, and she's very upset with the teacher. And he tells her, you you have to put yourself in the teacher's skin. You know, it's immediately this kind of Jesus message. The fir- that's the first words out of his mouth. And there's this kind of like gleaming, burnished, archetypal quality of all of the events in the novel that you cannot say of Marjorie Morningstar, who cares if a mediocre Jewish woman gets married and foregoes her career. This is about race in America. And, you know, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, the Nigerian novelist, wrote a piece in The Guardian about five, seven years ago in their column rereading, uh, talking about the book. And she said, when I read it as a kid, I loved it for Scout, uh, as you say, Laurie. I read it because uh, she was the like the best imagined version of herself. Rereading as an adult, she says, I came to admire it for its clear-eyed depiction of American tribalism in its three major manifestations, race, class, and region. Few contemporary literary American novels have such a sweep and fewer have the confidence to take on social issues in the way that Harper Lee does. I mean, there are fans out there who take it very seriously as a literary novel. One thing that Harper Lee said about her novel in the 1960s when she was still giving interviews, which she didn't do after 1964, she said, Surely it is plain to the simplest intelligence that To Kill a Mockingbird spells out in words of seldom more than two syllables a code of honor and conduct, Christian in its ethic. That is the heritage of all Southerners. And one thing we haven't talked about is what the book is about, which is a black man being accused of rape by a crazy-ass drunk white woman and her father and being found guilty by a jury of all white men and then killed viciously and savagely when he tries to escape from jail. So, I mean, these are things of great import. And Americans always want to feel good about themselves, so embracing that book allows them to wash away the stain of racism on some level. Or to or, also to understand to it. it. I mean, it's, this, this is 1961, right? 62? Yeah, and it's... 60. 60. It, for, it's for people who, who don't want to dig into Faulkner, I think Harper Lee is a terrific substitute. <laughs> 
<laughs> You're such a snob. <laughs> this is the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Adrian Todd Zuniga, who would sleep in a vat of jello if it helped the cause of literature, has another story for us. It's coming up now, and I cannot wait to hear what he's going to tell us this week. In somebody else's arms. With Literary Deathmatch, the way we finish the show is we always have a finale, which is a vaguely literary game to decide the winner. So instead of having people read haikus or something or just more of their work, instead we, we have them compete in something fun and wild and give it a really exciting finish at the end. And there are just sort of three finales that pop to mind. One is just sort of an offshoot about how people typically, when they do the show, they're sort of a little nervous to read. It's like doing karaoke. After you do it, you're excited, but before that, you think you're not going to be any good. But Catherine Center, she was reading in Dallas, and it was our first show ever in Dallas, our only show so far in Dallas. And uh, she was reading at the Dallas Museum of Art, and she was so nervous about doing the show, she's like, I don't, I don't want to win my round because I don't want to be part of the finale. And I was like, all right, well, we'll see what happens. And then she ended up winning her round, and finale time came. And what we were having uh, the two finalists do is they had a bunch of Nerf footballs, little kid-sized, tiny-sized Nerf footballs, and they had to throw them at varying lengths down the stage to hit different writers. Larry McMurtry was like the 50-yard bomb of uh, literary figures. And uh, it was amazing to watch Catherine go from just passive, like, oh, I'm just here to have fun and thank you for like my writing, to like, she had a game face on like I'd never seen. And afterwards, she's like, she didn't end up winning. Will Clark ended up winning. But afterwards, I said, like, how was that? She's like, I couldn't believe how much I wanted to win. <laughs> and then there was this time in Los Angeles. We were at uh, Busby's East, and Jillian Lauren was part of the finale. And the finale was that we were celebrating Brett Easton Ellis by having the two writers, the two finalists, throw cupcakes at a poster of his face. And the idea was that the person who got the, the chocolate or the vanilla icing, whoever got their icing color closest to the very center of his mouth was going to be the winner. And Jillian was not winning, and it was her final cupcake toss. They each had three tosses. And she was like, can I throw underhand? And she was just super, she was so intent on winning this thing. And I was like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. And she reared back, launched the cupcake, and it went somewhere between 25 and 35 feet over the poster. <laughs> and never again has been seen. Like, it, I mean, there's a whole rest of the bar that it could have hit or like after the ceiling, but I, somewhere in the cosmos, there's a cupcake still floating around because Jillian Lauren's uh, underhand toss. And then there was another finale we did uh, in New York City and Ginny Slate, the great writer, actress, comedian, she was part of it. And uh, she had read this beautiful story. We had invited her because Marcel Shell was shoes on, but she'd written, this, uh, written and read this beautiful story and she'd made the finals. For the finale, she had to spray Silly String into the mouth, uh, a poster of the mouth of the guy who wrote Fast Food Nation, Eric Schlosser. So she had, uh, she had a blindfold on, we had given her Silly String, and she was just spraying this stuff and it, he was slowly choking it down because we had to weigh the bag after. I don't know why. That one doesn't have the same narrative arc, but it's hilarious to see somebody blindfolded, uh, violently spraying Silly String into the cosmos. Luckily, she hit enough of his uh, mouth and she ended up being a literary deathmatch champion. So, so I mean, once again, uh, Adrian, 
Todd Zuniga, thanks for your service to literature. That's, yeah, when, it, when you can provide these kind of literary moments, uh, you really can't go wrong. I noticed the other day when I was uh, wasting time on the internet that Morgan Entrican, the editor-in-chief of uh, Grove Atlantic, has gotten behind a new literary aggregator, a website, a big website called Literary Hub. LitHub.com. LitHub.com, as I was saying. And uh, according to the Wall Street Journal here, Jennifer Maloney's piece, Literary Hub, but why argue? LitHub. <laughs> LitHub, Laurie. All right, you're, gonna, you're sticking with LitHub. So the site Literary Hub that Morgan Entrican is behind... Is it LitHub? LitHub. ...is, is uh, going to... They've got 70 partners, ranging from small presses to big outfits such as Scribner, Knopf, and uh, FSG, bookstores, literary magazines. Tom, when you guys founded the Los Angeles Review of Books, uh, it was to take the place of the vanishing Sunday supplements and the disappearing literary coverage, and it was not meant to be hand-in-hand with the publishing industry. Now, Morgan Entrican is a publisher himself. This is very much hand-in-hand with the publishing industry, and I would love to get your thoughts on what they're doing. It's incredibly hand-in-hand, and and one of the things they're going to be doing is running a lot of excerpts, which is which is an interesting you know thing that's been happening across the internet now, right? Salon, their book section has a lot of, of excerpts. Excerpts, good thing, bad thing. This idea that instead of criticism, you just give people an excerpt, that's A, lazy, and B, um, not particularly useful. Ooh, it's down. But they're going to be linking to reviews and criticism as well, though, aren't one they? Assu- one assumes. We haven't, we haven't actually mm-hmm. seen it yet. My first thought was, oh, is this a competitor with us, or is this someone we want to join with, or how does this outfit differ from what we're doing. Now, where do you you come out? We want to join with them. Well, of course, we want to join with them. And the Paris Review, which, you know, very similar to what we do, uh, is joined with them. But also, one of the things I was always proud of about the LA Review of Books is that it's run by people who are not publishers, and they're not working for publishers. So we don't have the publisher's interest is not our first priority. And that's, I think, sets us apart. It, a little bit. I mean, we have the author's interest as our first priority and, and our reader's interest. But obviously, authors are no good without publishers. Publishers are no good without authors. So there, it's a, it may be a, a, a somewhat finicky distinction. So this is, but I think it's real. It's, but, so this is, this is, it's a wary acceptance and it's a, a positive thing? If people are going to go to it, we want to be there so that people can come see us from, from this hub. If, it's, if it turns out to be an actual hub, we'll have to wait and see. Well, it seems to me what they want to do is is kind of a Huffington Post for for books in a that's, way, right? Yeah, that's what Entry just said. a massive, yeah. massive aggregator, and I don't see how that can be bad for people who do what we do. What we're waiting to see, of course, is whether they're going to allow us to do a deck and jump arrangement. That is, we'll we'll publish the first paragraph on their hub, and then people will click through to read the rest of the piece on Los Angeles Review of Books. Now, when we used to reprint some of our stuff on Salon. They wouldn't let us do that. They most websites don't like you to leave uh, and and um, go to somebody else's website because then they've lost you. So to get their page count up, uh, to get their to keep their readership up, they want to keep you on the site. And so we're waiting to see whether um, LitHub is going to allow us to do a deck and jump relationship. And this them. is being sorted out now. Yeah, this is truly shop talk. It is shop talk, but it's the way the world works now. Um, there, there, it is. It's a competitive environment, and people. People to stay alive need to have their readership numbers, and uh, 
And if this is going to suck the readers out of all the other literary outlets, that's a bad thing for literature. Mm -hmm. If it's really going to distribute interested people across this landscape that they're aggregating, then fantastic. The way Arts and Letters Daily does, for instance, then that's terrific. Is that the model, do you think, Arts and Letters Daily? I haven't seen it yet, but I hope so. Mm -hmm. This is Seth Greenland, and you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. We're recording this show on Valentine's Day, and uh, I know when I think about love, I think of Fifty Shades of Grey, the uh, the new novel <laughs> that's <laughs> gaining, gaining all kinds of cultural attention, particularly because the movie version opened yesterday. And as someone who lives... In the world of books, I am fascinated when something like this, by all accounts not a particularly fine work of literature, garners the remarkable international attention that that it has uh, managed to attract. It's it's a massive book on the scale of something like Love Story or The Da Vinci Code. There are a gazillion... Or To Kill a Mockingbird. Or To Kill a Mockingbird, exactly. for example. Now, laurie has been listening to it on, t- on, uh, on tape, haven't you? Let's take a listen. Keep still, he orders, and slowly he inserts his thumb inside me, rotating it around and around... Stroking the front wall of my vagina. Did he just say vagina? Yes, he did. did. I want to hear him read everything. I would listen to Gilbert reading Moby Dick, I think. Oh, that would be fantastic. Did you just say Dick? I did. A vast Moby Dick Dick joke. It's the LARB radio hour. (laughs) Everyone. Oh, I do have a theory about why Fifty Shades of Grey is so popular. So in the world out there, you, you probably know this, but you may not have thought about it. 95.9% of the pornography out there is designed for men. This alone accounts for the popularity of this book. But isn't there other female-driven literary porn? There is. It's a genre. People write yeah, name it. Yeah, they... name a book. Well, it, it's just not an, I did not get my PhD in that area, or, or, or I... any other for that matter. <laughs> but, but I will make the point that female-driven porn is, is a genre. But for some reason, this book written by this author, whose name is not on the tip of my tongue. It doesn't matter. Is somehow resonating with people in a way that all the other female-driven porn has not until Well, you remember now. when Fear of Flying happened, right? That was, that was a huge book. And it was a huge book because she was talking about her husband's balls, right? She was, talking about, she was talking about sex in a way that had not been part of the polite literary discussion of sex well, by a woman. But if the hallmarks of best-selling female pornography are Fear of Flying and Fifty Shades of Grey, this is not good news for feminism because... Erica Zhang is famous for the zipless and of course Fifty Shades is about S&M the woman being the subservient person these books are telling us that the masses of women that their fantasies have to do with being submissive can we back up for two seconds Uh, are you saying that the uh, Erica Zhang's book Fear of Flying is pornography I don't know, but I think it was perceived as that. It was considered titillating at the time. It was titillating, yeah. But it was it was a comic feminist fable, really. What t- takes it completely away from that neighborhood is that it has literary value. 
but does that always make it not not pornographic? I guess it does. I think it does. I think it does too. But the the definition of pornography isn't it? It's the thing that exists for pure titillation that has no other value beyond that. And do you think that this Fifty Shades of Grey is? I suspect that it was. Yeah. Do you think that all of those uh, those kind of bodice rippers are are designed for that purpose? Yes, they are engineered for that specific but, and so no role. i don't think, yeah, i don't think that's right i don't i think the bodice rippers are are more for romantic fantasy i don't think they're necessarily related to masturbation no no i think when you when you say the bodice rippers are they engineered for something i don't think they're necessarily engineered for solo genital manipulation that's they're, what i mean they're, no they're engineered for emotional manipulation yeah. N- nicely okay. said, though. Yes, right, for, very nicely for said. NPR. Thank audience. you. I'm yeah, trying like, to keep it clean. I like it. When I have potty mouth Lori Weiner next to me, I think <laughs> I need to elevate the level of the discourse, quite honestly. Um, but the interesting thing for me is that these are books that they somehow become not just a book, but a cultural moment. We're all talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, not because it's a great, great book, obviously, and not because we're interested, like all of a sudden we know about S&M. Uh, it's because we, it, because it's so popular that we are looking for an explanation for what it means about our culture. Well, what's interesting is when I think of the books that have exploded like that, I think about uh, Love Story, The Da Vinci Code, uh, The Love Godfather. Story, yeah. These are all immense, immensely successful books, many, uh, many times read by people who don't ordinarily read books. But what's interesting to me about Fifty Shades of Grey is it's the first time one of these books has become so successful that that's pornographic, essentially. So it's the first gigantically successful porn manifestation in American culture, isn't it? Um, That's an interesting question. Can you think of another one? Uh, The Monks of Monk Hall. The Monks of Monk Hall. Was, Eight, I think, 1844, a novel about the, you know, the dark, dark mysteries of Philadelphia. We're learning things about Tom Lutz that I think our <laughs> listeners do not necessarily... I love, I love my Victorian porn. I can't tell you how many know. monk costumes I have in my drawer. That is very, very <laughs> scary to me. To me, the cultural moment we're witnessing here is the complete mainstreaming of pornography. That it's gotten so acceptable, you're going to be buying it at the checkout counter at Vons. And, and, you know, Lena Dunham taking off her clothes all the time on her show and, you know, this kind of a new, a new kind of like every, it's okay to talk about anything, to show anything, to, to be, you know, right? Also, I think there is a post-feminist, I'm not saying that feminism is over by any means, but a post-feminist moment in that I don't think in the 70s it would have been permissible to have a best-selling book about S&M when women were in a more elementary phase of fighting for their their status no this book would have been sold in a brown paper bag in the 70s is it that is it really that i haven't read it well Well, none of us have read it none of us have read it (laughs) (laughs) the cultural moment we're coming to now is the end of our show i'd like to thank adrian todd zuniga for Tom Lutz, Lori Weiner, our producer Jerry Gorin, this is Seth Greenland. You've been listening to the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour, made possible by a grant from the Goldhirsch Foundation and the friends and supporters of LARB. Become a member today. You can find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. We will see you next week. <laughs>